this morning as we come to worship and to praise Him, to recognize the truth of the resurrection, I want to direct your attention to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, verses 1 through 12 will be our text this morning. Luke 24, verses 1 through 12. Now in a few moments when I read this, you'll notice that verse 1 begins with the adversial conjunction, but. In a sentence, that little three-letter conjunction signifies a turn. Not this, but that. And here it carries an added weight. Because the 23rd chapter of Luke has ended on a very sad and tragic note. Jesus has died. A man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea went before Pilate, asked permission for the body. He was granted that permission. Then he went and allowed Jesus to be buried in his tomb. There's a group of women who planned to anoint the body of Jesus, but because of the events of Friday and because the Sabbath was about to begin, they were not able to complete their task. And so Luke 23 ends with Jesus dead, the majority of his followers in hiding, and a group of women waiting to pay their final respects to their deceased teacher. Then comes that three-letter word, but. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their heads to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day, rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. May God be glorified in the reading and the hearing of his word this morning. Writer Phil Calloway tells of a time many years ago when he had gone for a Sunday afternoon drive, taking his five-year-old son with him. As they were driving along, the route they took happened to take them by a cemetery. And as they were driving past, his five-year-old son noticed that there was a large mound of dirt where a grave had recently been dug. Seeing this mound of dirt, his son got excited and started saying, Daddy, Daddy, look, one got out. <laughs> Phil Calloway 
says he laughed. But now, every time he passes a cemetery, he is reminded of the one who really got out. Now, I want to remind you that the resurrection of Jesus is different from all the other resuscitations throughout history. I use those two words very specifically because a resurrection is different than a resuscitation. Jesus himself resuscitated many, brought many back to life. But those whom Jesus brought back to life began to decay again, began to age, and eventually died again. But the resurrection of Jesus was different. When Jesus came out of the tomb, his cells no longer suffered any sort of decay. Because I would remind you, Jesus was just like us. He was fully man. So from the moment he was born, he began aging. There is no doubt there are times after sleeping under the Palestinian sky that he woke up with aches and pains and said, Oh, I'd like another 15 minutes of sleep. But not anymore. After the resurrection, his body is renewed. It is a new body, a new humanity that would never decay, nor would it ever die. That's why it's important to remember that Jesus did not escape from the tomb like a criminal getting over the, over the walls of the prison. He did not sneak out of the tomb. Rather, he came out of the tomb victorious, the conqueror of death. And each gospel ends with the resurrection. Because without the resurrection, the life and the death of Jesus is meaningless. The resurrection is, as it were, the hub of Christianity's will. If you remove the resurrection, the will collapses upon itself. For Christianity is not a philosophy, nor is it just a moral code. Christianity at its core consists of those who believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, who believe that Jesus lived a sinless life, who believe that he was crucified and died, and that three days later he rose from the dead. This is the crux of Christianity. In fact, when you read through the book of Acts and you start reading the messages that were preached by the apostles, each message in the book of Acts centers not on the cross, but on the resurrection. Theologian Yarsof Pelican sums up the importance of the resurrection when he writes, If Jesus is risen, nothing else matters. And if Christ is not risen, Nothing else matters. This is in no way to downplay the meaning of the cross. But to recognize the cross itself did not accomplish redemption. Redemption was done in the cross and resurrection. As I mentioned earlier, chapter 23 of Luke has ended with the death of Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea was a member of the Sanhedrin, part of the 70-member council consisting of both Sadducees and Pharisees who gave rule and guidance to the people of Israel. And he was one who was coming to faith in Jesus Christ. So he asked for and received permission from Herod, no relation by the way, to take possession of the body of Jesus we are recorded there in verse 55 that women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed and saw the tomb 
and how his body was laid. There are two important facts to take out of that truth. One is this, the women knew where the tomb was and where the body of Jesus had been laid. This is to counter any argument that would say, well, on that Sunday morning they went to the wrong tomb. That's an argument that has been presented by skeptics who say the resurrection couldn't have occurred. The women were simply mistaken. And in the the early dawn and in the fuzziness of their grief, they went to the wrong grave. Well, Luke is reminding us that can't be the case. They clearly saw where Jesus was buried. They knew it. They knew the way. It was no case of mistaken cemetery at this point. Furthermore, I would draw the fact that it was women who were the first witnesses. Guys, All the men had vamoosed, gone. You have this incredible group of women that are remaining faithful to Jesus. Now this is an important fact because if the resurrection of Jesus was a tale fabricated by the early church, they made their tale begin in the worst way possible. Because at the time the gospel was written, women were not considered to be valid witnesses to anything. In fact, the testimony of a woman at the time the gospels were circulating would be discounted from the get-go simply because of their gender. So if you were making up the story, why would you have your first witnesses, those whose testimony would be disdained from the very start? No. They say that it was women who first went to the tomb because they were first there. This group of women, this group of women that were amazing. The three leaders are mentioned in verse 10. Mary Magdalene. We're told in Luke chapter 8 verse 2 that she was possessed of seven demons until she met Jesus. And they were exorcised. And from that moment on, she followed Jesus as her Lord. We hear the next one, a lady by the name of Joanna. Joanna is mentioned earlier in the Gospel of Luke because her husband was the manager of Herod's household. He was the head butler. Now think about that for a moment. Herod, who was antagonistic toward Christ, has within his household believers. And she was at particular risk because what would happen should it be discovered that she is a follower of this teacher that could cause her husband to lose his job and cause distress for their family. So here is Joanna there with Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James. We don't believe that this is James the brother of Jesus because otherwise that would have been made mention. Mary was mentioned earlier in the gospel. Nor was it Mary, the mother of John and James, because John is omitted. This could be James the Lesser, which we don't know much about her other than the fact that she is one of the three that gave leadership to this group of women who discovered the empty tomb. And in their discovery of the empty tomb, we are led to discover this one crucial truth. This message today has one main point. Because Jesus has risen, we can have a new beginning. Because Jesus is risen, we can have a new beginning. I draw your attention to verses 5 through 7 to the message that the angels gave to the women. As the women are frightened and perplexed as to what is going on, the angel gives that great rhetorical question, why do you seek the living among the dead? 
He's not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee. Now, I draw your attention to verse 7. What had Jesus told them? That the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Now, if you mark in your Bible, I would encourage you to underline that word, must. That word must carries with it an exceptional weight because it's a word that speaks of divine necessity. In other words, it was necessary, absolutely necessary, for Jesus to be arrested, to be crucified, and to rise again. It had to take place for salvation to take place. In other words, if Jesus has not risen from the dead, we are not saved from our sins. Now, I would remind you that salvation has three aspects to it. To say that we are saved carries with it three important aspects that we are justified before God that word justified means made right with God sins forgiven guilt expunged to be justified is to be right with God but saved also means to be sanctified that means living for God and the final aspect of our salvation is glorification, which speaks of living with God forever. So to say that we are saved means that our past is secured because we have been forgiven. Our present is secured because we are being sanctified. And our future is secured because we will be glorified. None of those things could occur without the resurrection. Romans chapter 4 verses 24 through 25 Paul writes this righteousness will be counted to us who believe in him who raised Jesus from the dead who was delivered for our trespasses and raised for our justification you notice how the resurrection is central in what Paul writes who do we believe in God? How is God identified? As the one who raised Jesus from the dead. And who is this Jesus? The one who was delivered for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Now as I said, this is in no way to demean the cross. But without the resurrection, the cross is gutted of its power and what would have been accomplished there. And we are simply used to thinking of justification and the cross. That's because we think of justification in terms of legal language. That we were guilty before God. And on the cross, Jesus paid our guilt debt before God so that we could be set free. So how does the resurrection bring about justification? I ask you to keep two things in mind. First is the incarnation of Jesus. Didn't know we were going to mention Christmas at Easter, did you? You see, when Jesus became fully man, when he was born of the Virgin Mary there in that stable, he became fully human. He was of the same stuff that you and I are. Fully God, but fully man. That's important because it means that he identifies with us and we identify with him. He becomes, as it were, our representative. Which leads us to the second thing to keep in mind. That in everything Jesus did, he acted in a vicarious way on our behalf. 
So when Jesus acted, he acted on our behalf. That means the incarnation was on our behalf. His obedient life was on our behalf. The sinless life that Jesus lived was on our behalf. His death was on our behalf. His resurrection was on our behalf. So that by faith, we are brought into union with Christ. You see, our faith brings us into a relationship with Christ whereby we can truly say his life was our life. His death was was our death. His resurrection was our resurrection. That's why the Apostle Paul writes in Colossians 2.13, and you, that's us, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. When he says God made alive together, made alive together with Jesus, that's a reference to the resurrection. He's saying, you, believer, have been made alive with Jesus in the resurrection. He goes on in Colossians 3.1. If then you have been raised with Christ. That's the resurrection. So Paul not only says in Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ, so it is I who no longer live. He also says, I have been raised with Christ, so that the life I live, I live in him. Our justification is not just about our legal standing with God. It's about being declared righteous with respect to God's purpose for creation. You see, Jesus restores humanity to the way God intended humanity to be. And he does that in the resurrection. That's why Paul in the book of 1 Corinthians refers to Jesus as the last and final Adam. He says the first Adam brought sin into this world. The last and final Adam, Jesus, brings new life. By the way, that word last is the word, Greek word eschaton. If you've studied much and heard the word eschatology, it refers to final or last things. Jesus is the final Adam. Life comes through him. And Luke emphasizes this in a very subtle way. This is one of those moments as I was studying this week and was reading that you ever have those moments where you read something that you had never considered before and you go, huh, I did that a lot this week. Luke emphasizes the newness of life in Christ, that Christ begins new life in a very unique way. Luke, above the other gospels, emphasizes that Mary was a virgin, had never known a man. Jesus was born of a virgin. If you look in Luke 23, look at verse 53. There's a detail there that makes you think, why is that included? They took the body down, wrapped it in a linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb cut in stone. Where no one had ever been laid. No one had ever been buried in that tomb. If you'll allow me to press this a bit. It was a virgin tomb. Jesus comes into this world born of a virgin in life. He comes into the new life out of a tomb that no one had ever used before, coming to give life. So by faith in him, we become who God intended us to be because of Jesus and the resurrection. And that's glorious news, church, because that means you and I can enjoy life. We can truly say we are alive because Jesus is the firstborn of the new creation. He is the last Adam. He is the one resurrected from the dead, bringing new life. One of the traditions that we have in the Herods that's developed over the last few years is that every Easter season, at some point, we will carve out four hours and watch Ben-Hur. 
Not the new Ben-Hur, the old, true Ben-Hur with Charlton Heston. A lot of things about that movie that are fantastic. I, don't, I won't spoil any endings for you. Of course, Ben-Hur is known for the chariot race, but we have always kind of, I don't know, been drawn to the point where he's a slave in the galley of a warship, rowing, chained to the oars, rowing. And if you're familiar with it, you know, you've got the guy with the drum pounding out the beat on how they are to row, and then it hits, ramming speed. You know, and these guys are rowing with all their might. Well, it struck me there's one point where the captain of the ship is walking among the slaves. And he says to them, row well and live. Row well and live. If you don't row well, you die. And it struck me that's how so many people are trying to live their life. Do well and live. Do good and live. Follow the Ten Commandments and live. And we try and we try, but we can't even get past the, the shall not covet thing. So how am I supposed to do well and live? Understand that the good news of the gospel is that we don't have to be good because Jesus has been good. We don't have to attain to God's level because Jesus has attained to God's level. And our freedom is found in Him. Theologian Ross Hastings puts it this way. That is why the source of our assurance of salvation Salvation is not ultimately how our souls are doing, how our affections are ordered or disordered, how our actions are ethical or how we are feeling. These things have their place. But our source of assurance that we are righteous in God's sight is the risen righteous Christ in whom all has been made right. That's our hope of justification. That's how we are made right with God he paid the penalty for our sin on the cross and in the resurrection brought humanity to God's standard by coming forth from the tomb with a new body, being resurrected to new life. And sanctification is simply living the life that Jesus secured for us when he walked out of the tomb. Sanctification is not living in the way of death. It is living in the way that Jesus has made possible for us because of the resurrection. Now, to do that, we must keep Jesus' resurrection first and foremost in our thinking because that reminds us of the supernatural power of God. I remind you that when these ladies ended up at the tomb, they were not expecting to find an empty tomb. They were not expecting for the stone to be rolled away. They were not expecting to find angelic messengers telling them of the good news. But God did more than they anticipated, and he still does today. You see, the resurrection reminds us that the power you and I need to live each day, to live according to how God would desire us to, is not found in us, but in Him. In Ephesians 3, 20-21, Paul writes, Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we think or ask. Isn't it good to know that our limited imaginations do not limit God? He can do more than you and I think to ask or to pray for. Now listen to this. How does God do more than we can think or ask for? According to the power at work within us. So believer, there is a power at work within you that God is going to work according to. So the question is, what is that power? I'm glad you asked. In Ephesians 1, Paul says, What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead? 
It is the resurrection power that is at work within every believer, bringing us to live the life that God has secured for us in Christ Jesus, and that is freedom. I want to know more of that resurrection power. That's why Paul said in Philippians 3.10, I want to know him and the fellowship of his sufferings and the power of his resurrection. Let's not limit God by saying, Lord, all I can see are the things around me. But let's say, Lord, you are able to do more. When you pray, say, Lord, here is my request. But God, you are able to do more according to the resurrection power that is within me. Christian, I hope that we live with a sense of anticipation and expectation as to what God is going to do next. That's why we cannot become discouraged when life turns in a way we didn't think it would go. Because we know God is a God who is able to do more than we expect. More than we even anticipate. Trust Him. Look to Him. Be reminded of that in the power of the resurrection. You see, the gospel message, according to Eugene Peterson, is this. We don't live in a mechanistic world, mechanistic world ruled by necessity. We don't live in a world that is ruled by random chance. We live in a world ruled by God, the God of Exodus and Easter. And he will do things in you that neither you nor your friends would have thought possible. And that also includes our hope. Remember, there were three aspects of salvation justification secured by the resurrection sanctification empowered by the resurrection glorification secured and promised by the resurrection you see the resurrection of Jesus from the dead reminds us that the grave does not have the final victory as I was thinking of this hope and as a pastor I've been a pastor for 30 years now started when I was five I wish I've done over 150 funerals. I started thinking back, and I remember the very first funeral I ever attended. I was five years old. It was my grandfather, Papa Walker. Papa Walker had a rough life. My mom grew up poor. I often think of her growing up when I hear the Alabama song, Song of the South. We all picked the cotton, but we never got rich. That was mom and her family growing up. I realize things now, and discovered things that I didn't know when I was five because I didn't need to know them at that age. But my grandfather was a functioning alcoholic. One of the reasons he drank was to numb pain. Because when he was a young man, he was injured in a farming accident and lost his left leg from the knee down. This is in the time before there were pain medications to be purchased. And he lived his life in a great deal of pain. In fact, my mother told me later that at the funeral home, the director, who was a friend of my papa, said, Imogene, I hope you don't hold it against your dad that he drank. Because he drank to ease the pain. Because, Gene, I've been with him when there would be bone fragments work out of his skin from where his leg had been crushed. And I thought of papa as I was reading this. My papa was a believer. Did he deserve to be saved? No, no more than I deserve to be saved. But I started thinking what that means is that my grandfather, who was so tormented in life, one day will rise again with a new body, with two legs, free from the pain that this world cost him. And any of you that have stood beside a grave, and in that grave is one who had faith in Christ, you have that same hope too. 
I end every funeral that I do at the grave with the words of C.S. Lewis who once said, Christians never say goodbye. We simply say, see you later. Did you know the resurrection guarantees that? Because Jesus came out of the tomb, we have guaranteed promise of God that the resurrection will occur one day. That those who have died in Christ will come out with new bodies in the image of our new Adam. And we who are alive will be transformed. And all of this is ours by faith. To trust, to believe. I ask you today, have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? If you're not sure what that means, I'll be at the front as we sing a hymn for you to respond. And even if you, if you don't want to walk the aisle, I'll be around afterward and be glad to talk with you about what faith means and how it brings us into union with Christ to share in the glories of the resurrection. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me, if you will. Father, I pray that this one truth will sink into our hearts. That because of the resurrection, we have a new beginning. Father, I pray that we will recognize that the resurrection is not just an addendum to your plan of salvation. It's not an appendix as if it were an afterthought. But Lord, it has been your plan since the beginning. So Father, I pray that we would learn to glory not only in the cross, but in the resurrection. Let your power work within us, Father. That resurrection power, Lord, we need that. Father, I know myself included, many of us get down with the struggles of life each day. Remind us, oh God, that you are at work within us to do even more than we expect because of the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. Lord, renew us in that today, we pray. In the name of our risen Savior, amen.